0: There's a lot of advice on applying to medical schools out there, but what if you're exploring other careers in healthcare? There's an alphabet soup of degrees and possibilities. What do they require? What are the commonalities and distinctions between these programs and professions? We're going to find out in today's interview with Dr. Valerie Worley.
1: Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams.
0: Welcome to the 499th episode of Admissions Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. We have lots of resources, articles, guides, podcast episodes that can help you get accepted to the graduate healthcare programs of your choice. Just go to accepted.com slash healthcare and explore the library of free resources there. Now, again, today is all about healthcare. And our guest today is Dr. Valerie Worley, Accepted Consultant. Dr. Worley earned her BS and MS at the University of Maine in kinesiology and her PhD in higher education, higher education administration from the University of Connecticut. Over the last 20 years, she has served as the Assistant Dean of Student Affairs and Career Development at William Beaumont School of Medicine, Director of the Pre-Health Post-Bacc Certification Program at Sacred Heart University, and the Director of Pre-Health Advisement, Sacred Heart University. In those roles and before joining Accepted earlier this year, she advised thousands of students in the following pre-health tracks: pre-med, pre-PA, physician assistant, pre-vet, pre-dental, pre-pharmacy, pre-physical therapy, pre-occupational therapy, pre-accelerated nursing, and pre-optometry, as well as applicants to master's program in exercise science, biomedical science, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, athletic training, public health, and applied nutrition. Let's tap into that amazingly broad and extensive experience. Dr. Worley, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you for having me. Delighted to speak with you. Okay, let's start with a really basic question. What should all applicants in the healthcare fields have if they want to apply successfully? And in other words, what do they have in common in terms of the requirements? And I'd like you to divide that into the academic arena and the experiential arena.
1: Sure. Okay. Okay. Great question. So as you as you said, as you indicated, I have worked with a variety of pre-health fields over the time that I worked at Sacred Heart and at Beaumont School of Medicine. And the commonality that students need to have in their academics is a demonstration of mastery of those prerequisite courses. So a very strong academic transcript and whatever those prerequisite courses are for their intended path. Okay. Typically that's strong in the sciences. Lots of those pre-health tracks have common courses such as biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, anatomy, with some nuances depending on the track. And there's just no way around saying you have to demonstrate competency and mastery of those foundational concepts on your academic transcript. So you do have to be strong there. From an experience perspective, my suggestion is you have to demonstrate that you have exposure to your intended career path. And we can get into this in a bit more detail, but exposure comes from observation, shadowing, interviewing, the people who are doing the work that you think you want to be doing in the future. So it's not enough if you have a family member who has said to you, you'll make a great dentist one day. That's lovely. However, you have to have been in the field, in the trenches, seeing the work and still know that that is your calling. And you can demonstrate that in your personal statement and in your interview when you are applying to graduate school.
0: Is shadowing enough? Or do you have to, you know, to take your dental example, let's say volunteer in a dental clinic or, or be a dental assistant, or if you want to be a, a physical therapist, again, be a, maybe a, a Pilates teacher or a trainer beforehand. Or again, my basic question is, is shadowing enough?
1: Shadowing is the first place to start. So when I worked with undergraduate students, I always said shadowing is step one to really see if this is the place where you want to be. Shadowing is a great place to understand what you do like and what you don't like. So I would have pre-PT students, for example, who would shadow a physical therapist for a few weeks and walk away from that experience and say, that's absolutely what I could see myself doing. Or just as importantly, I cannot see myself doing that. It's not the scope of practice that I thought it was. And that's the importance of shadowing. So shadowing is just step one. And then we move into more in-depth experiences such as a semester-long internship or externship, some of those paid clinical experiences that are critically important to particular pre-health paths and things that fall under the category of healthcare experiences where you might not be paid and it might not be direct patient care, but it still qualifies as healthcare experience.
0: Right. Okay, great. Now let's explore some of the distinctions, okay? Okay. What should, let's say, DO applicants, osteopathic medicine applicants, do differently or have that their allopathic and MD applicants don't necessarily have or
1: just what's different? Okay, so MD and DO applicants should prepare somewhat similarly in terms of academics and core experiential things such as clinical experiences for sure, but DO applicants need to understand some of the basic principles of practicing in a DO way and what the DO education offers. And so the DO education offers usually about 200 hours of this piece called osteopathic manipulative treatment that is not offered in a traditional MD curriculum. And in a DO interview for example, you these applicant DO applicants may be asked a question, do you know what this is? Are you prepared for this piece of your education and what does this mean to you? Are you prepared to to put this into practice in your DO career. So DO applicants certainly wanna be aware of what this piece of their curriculum looks like. Also, what is the DO philosophy? So the DO you know, practicing philosophy takes into account a holistic view of the human and of the patient, and also really talks to patient care with a prevention point of view that MDs may or may not encompass, right? The other thing that seems to be a critical component is having a letter of recommendation from a DO as part of your overall application package. And so you're going to secure one of those letters if you've done, again, some shadowing, an internship, if you have a long-term working relationship with a DO who can write you a really strong letter of support.
0: Okay, great answer. Thank you. Now, physician assistants, they are becoming increasingly competitive. What are those programs looking for that's different from, again, let's say MD, or in this case, let's put MDDO together.
1: Okay. so. Physician assistant usually has some nuances in terms of their prerequisites that are different. My my pre-PA students are usually always required to take A and P1 and 2 More PA schools are requiring students take medical terminology. So again, there are some nuances in those prerequisites. PA schools are expecting students to walk in the door with some acquired clinical skills. And that is because PA curriculum is short. So once PA students, students start school, it is fast-paced, the learning environment happens quickly, and they're in those clinical settings fast, right? So PA students are expected to come in the door with some foundational clinical skills, and those are acquired by what's considered direct patient contact hours. And so to be a competitive candidate, most PA schools are requiring documented direct patient contact hours of whatever number. So schools vary by their required hours, some require require 250, some require 2,000, and so you're going to be a competitive applicant if you have documented direct patient contact hours, and you will acquire those by having some kind of license or certification, such as an EMT or an MA or a CNA, so that takes time. It's a real exercise in time management and organization to balance school and getting these patient contact hours done.
0: Do you think that a gap year might be advisable for many PA
1: applicants? So a lot of my PA applicants that I worked with at my university did take a gap year in order to finish and acquire enough of those patient contact hours in order to be competitive. I think a critical mistake is applying to PA school before a student is ready or when they're just meeting those minimum required hours that are posted on a school's website, my recommendation is always look at those minimum number of required hours and try to double it. And that's oh that's the point when you are really getting into the competitive area.
0: Wow, well, that's pretty demanding. <laughs> all right, let's let's go on to another specialty. What about dental school applicants? I, all right, so they have to they have to take the prerequisites. They have to get good grades. Mm-hmm. But what? What's different about dental applicants than about med or PA?
1: And of course, dental school applicants will take their admission exam known as the DAT, Mm. um, which is different than the MCAT, which is different than the GRE, which my PA students are taking. And I should have mentioned that PA students, you know, they're developing a new standardized test out there called the PA CAT. Oh, really? um, Which is coming down the pike right now. There are 11 schools out there requiring the PA CAT. There are other schools out there that are calling the PA CAT optional. And I think that we are going to see more and more schools adopting the PA cat um, in the future. So... You heard it here, folks.
0: (laughs) I digress.
1: So my pre-dental students are preparing for that DAT exam that can be taken at the end of um, junior year after most of the prerequisites are done, particularly organic chemistry. Dental experience is of utmost importance working as a dental tech, um, certainly in a dental office where you're shadowing a dentist. And some of those dental specialties are really good experience, like um, an orthodontist, somebody who works with an older population doing denture work, something like that. Also, joining a pre-dental club on campus if you are a traditional undergraduate student, which would offer you some volunteer experiences in the community, maybe teaching an elementary school about oral hygiene and how to floss and brush. That looks wonderful on an application. But what's really critically important to my pre-dental students is this thing known as manual dexterity so manual dexterity is critically important when you think about being a dentist and working in patients mouths that's a very tiny space and you have to be able to demonstrate that somehow in some fashion you have worked on your manual dexterity skills prior to going to dental school and some students get really creative when they demonstrate this they talk about their ability to knit or crochet, or do woodworking, or paint, or draw, or play a musical instrument. So anything like that is the ability to talk on your application about your manual dexterity skills.
0: I was thinking fine motor skills is the same thing, obviously, yeah, okay. So let's move from fine motor skills to uh, physical therapy, which I would assume would be very different.
1: Yes. More so, gross motor skill. That's right. Physical therapy. So looks at the body in totality and how to get the body more functionally moving through space. And to be a competitive physical therapy candidate, it is Observation, observation, observation. So it's observation and shadowing in a variety of physical therapy clinics, offices, outpatient, inpatient, and having your hours documented. So most physical therapy schools out there have some kind of log to submit at the time of application where your hours will be verified by your supervising physical therapist. So whether you have shadowed or observed for five hours or a hundred hours, you will have a physical therapist who will vouch for you, not only by signing that log, but hopefully also submitting a letter of recommendation. So it really is observing and supervising and supervising physical therapists who have a wide scope of practice in a variety of disciplines. So a pediatric physical therapist, a geriatric physical therapist, a physical therapist who works with traumatic brain injuries, the more the better, so when you go in for those interviews, you can speak to the variety of PT practice that is out there beyond what maybe we we typically think of just sport related PT,
0: right? Or the you know the sore neck or sore shoulder or whatever that you you know go for. Yeah. Okay. This is this is all fascinating. You're laying it out and beautifully. All right. Let's let's move from fine motor and gross motor to small animals and big animals what's different about veterinarians?
1: Okay. So my pre-vet students hold a special place in my heart. My dad is a large animal veterinarian who graduated from Cornell University. So he's been practicing for as long as I can remember. So in order to be a competitive veterinary medicine student or applicant, it is having again strong prerequisites more and more vet schools actually are shying away from requiring the GRE so for students out there who say I am not a good standardized test taker that is good news for my pre-vet students but demonstration of a variety of shadowing and clinical experiences is of utmost importance And so when I talk to my pre-vet students, I talk about getting exposure in four different categories of animal experience. And those are small animal, large animal, aquatic animal, and exotic animal. And if you can demonstrate that you have had experience and exposure in those four domains, that will show a holistic portfolio on your application. It is hard to do, especially depending on where you live regionally. If you do not live near a zoo, if you do not live near an aquarium, it's really challenging, but if you can, then that shows that you have a depth and breadth of experience.
0: So if I was just thinking, I, I'm in Los Angeles and maybe two miles from us is like an exotic animal rescue center where I have occasionally taken my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And then there's an aquarium about 40 minute drive away. There's obviously, they're not obviously, but there's the LA Zoo. And you can go out and find horses, uh, you know, ranches and stuff. So there's a bit of a distance, but it's not impossible. So L.A., you'd have lots and lots of opportunities to to cover the four categories. But if you're in some rural area, you may have lots of opportunity, let's say inland, to, to go for the large animals and maybe to go for small animals. But exotic animals and aquatic animals would be really tough.
1: They could be really tough. And that's where, um, again, if you're a traditional undergraduate student, connecting with a faculty member who could connect you maybe with an internship that maybe Mm -hmm. would require some summer travel would be of utmost importance if it's absolutely impossible for you to get experience in one of those four categories, then my second tier is school choice for my pre-vet students becomes critically important, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're applying to vet school, matching your experience on your resume with what those vet schools have to offer in terms of what are their specialty areas, what do their faculty specialize in, and um, what are their clinical experiences, that school choice should really match. So there are schools out there who have a really great exotic animal program. And so if you have a lot of exotic animal experience, that should be a really good match. And you can talk about that in your personal statement. If you have no exotic animal experience, that school might not be the best choice or fit for you.
0: Great answer, thank you. All right, let's let's keep exploring because you're, you're this is just this is a wonderful survey. What about most of what we've been talking about have been clinical areas in, in medicine where, you, you know, the, the professional is treating and interacting with patients, human or otherwise. What about if you're interested in a master's in public health?
1: OK. So um, I'm finding a lot of students are interested in masters of public health for a variety of reasons. I think being interested in the general population or public policy or what's just going on in our community is sparking an interest in this particular program. It's also a really interesting choice for students um, during a gap year. And so I'm finding some pre-med students or some pre-PA students acquiring an MPH during their gap year not only for their own personal interest, but also to become a more competitive applicant. So why, however you're doing this or whatever your motivation to become a competitive applicant, I really think that there are, are two avenues to think about. First of all, most MPH programs out there are going to ask you to write a statement of purpose. Right. So what is your driving motivation to get this master's of, of public health? And a statement of purpose is really, who are you? Why are you interested in this program, the MPH? And why are you interested in our school? right? And so that's really going to tell an admissions committee about why should they give you a seat in this program. That's going to be a really well-written statement of purpose. The second is thinking about what concentration or track you might be interested in the MPH program. Public health is so big. There are so many opportunities in public health. And I think sometimes there are so many opportunities, people can't really get a grasp of what is public health. To answer the question, what is public health is a whole lecture in and of itself. But if you look at a particular public health program, typically they offer somewhere between five and eight concentration areas, which is where you're, you'll sort of hang your hat academically speaking. And so some examples of those might be, you could focus on health promotion, um, environmental health, occupational health and wellness, epidemiology, biostatistics, or public policy, just to name a few. So really researching an area or a track that you think could meet your career objective or goal and writing about it and, and um, saying to an admissions committee, listen, I'm really interested in public policy and here is why. Um, those two writing pieces will help make your application rise to the top.
0: Right. And then also talk about how that school has a great program in public policy or whatever it is that you're you know you, you want to focus on, how that Absolutely. school is going to help you achieve your goals.
1: Absolutely. I was
0: when you first started talking about, you know, the statement of purpose, I was chuckling because a good friend, I've talked about this before, some listeners may have heard me. A good friend of mine's daughter came over one day. she was applying to grad school, not in public health, but in, in a I think a psychology field, master's program. And I've known this this young woman since birth. And I was reading her statement of purpose and at the end of it I had no idea what she wanted to do and, <laughs> and I said to her you know the what is why do you want to get this degree why do you want to go to this program and she said I don't know and I said well how do you want to write a statement of purpose if you don't have a purpose she said I don't know <laughs> I said well it's very difficult to write that way you know so yeah. you have to have an idea of where you want to go with a degree and as you're pointing out, MPH has so many, many opportunities and avenues to take it that you have to be able to, to articulate your reasons.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: OK. Again, we're doing a fantastic survey here. We're covering a lot of ground. You're giving fantastic advice, on a lot of different programs. Okay. This one is you directed the postback program at Sacred Heart who should do a formal post-bac program and who can do an informal one? And maybe you also want to touch on the different types of post programs.
1: Sure. Yes. So I, I did have the pleasure of being director of the post program at Sacred Heart University and worked with some wonderful uh, students through that program. Um, not the least of which were military veterans coming back and um, going back to school. So they were mm-hmm. a, a wonderful, wonderful group of, of post students. So in my post-bac program, in general, I, could, I had two sort of general categories of students, students that I would call career changers and students I would call academic enhancers. So students who are career changers coming to a post-bac program were students who did not study anything sort of scientifically related as an undergrad and decided have decided to completely change their career for one reason or another feeling maybe a calling to medicine and need to get all of their prerequisites done in order to move on to the next phase of their new career. So my career changers needed to do a complete and formal post-bac program, A to Z, soup to nuts, from bio to organic chemistry and beyond and you know, my program was two years long, and also acquire clinical experiences and research experience along the way, which was all part of our post program. At the end of our post program, they would get a certificate of completion and a fully vetted academic transcript, which looks really nice on an application, on a graduate school application. The second category of students were academic enhancers. So those were students who did take maybe a science-related undergraduate program and did not perform to the best of their ability the first time around, again, for whatever reason, and needed to come into our post back program to take a second crack or a second time at some of these courses. Now, students could, take a few courses, if they just needed to retake, say, organic chemistry two and physics one and calculus, and those were just the three courses that they needed to sort of redo before applying to graduate school, or if they really needed to redo the entire complement of classes because their undergraduate career Again, they just weren't academically ready. They did not have the study skills. They were not mature at that time. And they want to show a graduate program. I'm, 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 I can do it. I'm a new student now. And I have these new skills. Watch me now. They could take the full compliment. Okay. So
0: that, yeah, that's, that's, again, a great uh, response and, and overview. A really common concern for all applicants in, in healthcare, because, they they should do the experience that you've outlined, you know, specific to to, to the particular programs. I think a concern they all have is that they're going to come across as being cookie cutter or as they're checking the boxes to get it done, but maybe not having the real feeling and emotion, passion
1: for it. How can they differentiate themselves in an authentic way? Great question. So I've thought of a few ways that students can differentiate themselves to ensure that they are not looking like everybody else. My first answer to this question is longitudinal commitment to anything, but longitudinal commitment. So if you are an applicant who is doing community service for a day and doing research for a week and doing a leadership role for a month and doing these really kind of short-term items, that will look like you are checking a box. The students who have longitudinal commitment, and you get to choose what and where that looks like, if it is to your church or your synagogue, if it is to a volunteer experience at a soup kitchen. Notice I'm not mentioning clinical work here. I'm talking longitudinal commitment. If it's Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, but it has been a long-term, that really does differentiate you as an applicant because it shows commitment, it shows resolve, it shows resilience, it shows all of these really wonderful qualities about who you are. So that's number one. Number two, a diversity of interests, right? so applicants any of these pre-health applicants that i've talked about you have to take science classes so on some level you must be interested in science you must be interested in patient care you must be interested in helping people so that's pretty common so a diversity of interest is really kind of wonderful to read about from an admissions committee perspective so if you play the trumpet or if you surf or if you knit, or if you do something really magical, if you write poetry, that's very wonderful to read about because that shows that you do have interests outside of patient care. You have the ability to have great work-life balance. You can potentially talk to patients about something else besides their ailments and not feeling well. So you can connect with patients in the future on a real human level. So showing your diversity of interests is another way to stand out. And the third thing I would say is leadership. Leadership, leadership, leadership. So however you can manifest leadership, but not only manifest it, but talk about how it has changed you as a person and what skills you have cultivated as a result of that leadership and how you show the leadership on your application and don't just tell it like a resume item, but really show it and talk about it.
0: I would think that if also just getting back to your point about reflecting on leadership experiences, in addition to leadership, the value of leadership, which ultimately is an assumption of responsibility. Right. You can't be a leader without assuming responsibility for an outcome. Yeah. I would think that if if you reflected even on some of the clinical experiences, that you may have in common with other applicants to your particular specialty, it's your reflection on those activities that are almost automatically or should be distinctive, unless you're being really superficial.
1: Right. (laughs) Absolutely. That's always
0: a risk. Um, But um, if, if, you know, if you're thinking deeply about something and you've learned something that's not obvious to anybody who hasn't ever done it, you know, that would also be a way to distinguish yourself when talking about the clinical. But I think the three areas that you raised were were wonderful. And I want to thank you for them. What are some common mistakes that applicants make that you've seen over the years?
1: Uh, okay, a few common mistakes that I have seen, I caution applicants against predetermining their specialty at the time of application. Uh-huh. Now, I think it is okay for students to talk about what they may be interested in, right? So if you are an applicant who has shadowed lots and lots of surgery and you think you might want to go into a surgical specialty, that is okay but I do not think an application should be so forward facing as to predetermine and lock into a specialty area. When I was working at the medical school, I certainly saw students Uh, thoughts on specialty areas change from the time at the beginning of year three which is clinical rotations to the end of year three which is the end of clinical rotations because a light bulb moment happened something wonderful happened and a student went from surgery to ob and then declared ob at the end of year three so and vice versa i would assume also Absolutely. Absolutely. And more importantly, admissions committees, regardless of pre-health track, want to know that if you are getting a seat in their program, you are coming in with an open mind. So when you go into clinical rotations, whether it's inpatient or outpatient or psych or dermatology, that you will be there with an open mind and open heart and willing to listen and hear and absorb every single piece of information that you're not so closed off, that you are only concerned about one specialty area because you're locked in. So. Back to your original question, I caution students about locking in on a specialty area at the time of application. Another common mistake is applying before somebody is truly their most competitive self. So, I—that's uh, the kindest way to say it. I think some, you know, applying before you're really, really ready, and you know, ready is a term that you have to think about yourself, whether you're academically ready, uh, ready from a clinical perspective, ready with the strongest letters of recommendation, ready with your strongest test scores. I know applicants are very excited to get into the application cycle. That's a very exciting time in your academic career, but you also want to put together your most competitive application. And if it means waiting a year, that is in everybody's best interest. So, Doctor, um, you, know,
0: you know Barry Rothman, right? Dr. I Barry know. Rothman has, has said many times, the fastest way to medical school is slowly.
1: <laughs> That's so well said.
0: That's and it's so not well just well. medical school. It's, it's, I think, any of these programs.
1: Yeah. And the third thing I would say is a common mistake that I see applicants make is not being selective, discerning, or data-driven about school choice and school fit right? And I do think that time and thoughtful intention about where you are applying, why you are applying, doing some research on the mission statement of a school, the faculty that are at that school, what that school stands for. Are they clinically minded? Are they research minded? Are they Um, Globally minded, and how does that fit with you as an applicant? And how does that fit with your background and what you've done, what you hope to do in the future as a career? I do think that that really matters. And you know, some applicants will cast a very wide net and just, you know, sort of think, I'll just go wherever somebody gets me a seat. Um, Some dartboards at the board. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, you really want to be happy at the school where you are and fit with a peer group and a community where you can do some really good in-depth learning. And so I think school choice and school fit is a big part of this puzzle.
0: Thank you very much, that's excellent points. What do you wish I would have asked you?
1: Um, Let's see. I think my final point is about mock interviews. Go for it. (laughs)
0: What what do you have to tell us about mock interviews?
1: So I would like to say that I think mock interviews are so very important. So once you get your application in and you're in that application cycle and you get the wonderful news that you have been invited for an interview, practice, practice, practice. And a mock interview with a consultant uh, somebody who's been doing this work for a while is such a good use of time to prepare yourself in the most professional way, not only with how are you appearing on camera. If, you're, if your interview is going to be virtual, but the different types of interview formats that exist nowadays, the types of questions that you could be asked from general questions to pre-health specific questions from dental school to vet school to med school to all the different um, types of pre-health programs we've talked about today to the more difficult questions like situational judgment questions to diversity related questions to ethics based questions those are really tough and to also make sure that you are phrasing your answers in the most professional way mock interviews can be so very helpful so I can't recommend them highly enough
0: All right. I I think it's a great suggestion. And I'll link to our mock interview services as well as to uh, Dr. Worley's bio. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Worley. And listener, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Worley or take advantage of her expertise in all areas of healthcare admissions, career advising, we're going to include links to her bio and her contact me page in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 499. And again, we'll also include links to our mock interview services. Listener, thank you too for joining Dr. Valerie Worley and me for our 499th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, I have a suggestion for you. Subscribe. That way you won't miss any of our future shows, whether with admissions directors, writing experts, test prep pros, fantastic admissions consultants, or alumni doing great things. You can find subscribe links in the show notes at, you guessed slash 499. Speaking of future shows that you won't want to miss Next week is our 500th episode. I'm really excited about this milestone. On one hand, it's just another number like a birthday. And on the other hand, it's a very round number. It signifies the growth of Admission Straight Talk and its appeal. I wouldn't be doing it if people weren't listening. So thank you again for listening and tuning in next week. Number 500 will be a special treat. Reminder, you can access lots of free information, and yes, Accepted's paid guidance as well, by visiting accepted.com slash healthcare. There are plenty of complimentary resources, tips on writing essays, guides for specific degree goals, and relevant podcasts for you to easily explore at accepted.com slash healthcare. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you next week for number 500.